Please be seated. Our passage this morning comes from 2 John. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 3. It can be found on page 1025 in the Bibles in the pews. It's a short letter, so we're going to read the entire letter, but our focus of the sermon this morning will be on those first three verses. The second letter of John. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Let us look to the Lord in prayer to help us to understand his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it does revive the soul. I pray that it would revive our weary souls this morning. May you give us insight into what we are called to be as your people, a people of truth and of love. By your spirit, may you guide us into all truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite aspects of the Christmas season is the Christmas cards. I love how they fill the mailbox almost on a daily basis. I greatly prefer the Christmas cards to the usual bills, flyers, and general trash that populates my mailbox. My love for Christmas cards is also highly ironic because up until this year, I was strongly against sending them out. I guess that moving away from family and adding another child has made me somewhat of a softie when it comes to sending out Christmas cards. On the one hand, Christmas cards show how families have grown over the course of a year. It is encouraging to see family members added, um, children growing, and even parents aging one more year. These offer but a small reminder of God's faithfulness and blessing to all people. Because even if it has been a hard and difficult year, the Lord is still good. But Christmas cards are also fun. They reveal a lot about individuals and their families. All the different faces demand a quick round of who looks like who. I find it amusing to try and pinpoint distinguishing features or traits as I look through the various Christmas cards that we receive. 
Take my family, for instance. Ellie shares the coil features in, in her eyes. Margot appears, at least for now, to have the infamous coil chin. And to this point, I am still looking at which coil feature they both share together. I will refrain from declaring my findings from some of your Christmas cards, but without question, there are certain distinguishing features in each and every one of your families. These features, along with many other things, make it clear that the members of these families go together. They confirm that they belong, that this is where family resemblances lie. And in a way, John's introduction, the first three verses of his letter, functions similarly to a family Christmas card. There is a clear greeting in verse 3, which pronounces a blessing upon the people of God. But there's also a picture of what the family's features, in this case, the family of believers. John himself embodies this as he is writing, but he also draws it out in the words and the phrases that he uses. They're not hard to miss. They're repeated multiple times throughout these three short verses. Truth and love. Truth is seen four times, twice in verse 1 and once in both verses 2 and 3. Whereas love is seen three times, twice in verse 2, once implied and once explicit, and then once again in verse 3. They are what John emphasizes in this introduction. And they come up again later on in the body of his letter. John is saying that truth and love are the distinguishing features of the community of believers. So may we, the community of believers, be known by truth and love. Over the next three Sundays, we're going to work through John's second letter, his second epistle which is dominated by these themes of truth and love. The church of Jesus Christ holds steadfast to the truth while equally holding firm with love towards one another. Both are needed equally together for the church to persevere faithfully to the end. And what a reminder this is for us as we prepare to close one year and embark upon a new one. It would serve us well to examine how faithful we have been as a church at showing truth and love this past year. Certainly we have succeeded, but certainly we have also failed at times. And it would equally serve us well to recommit ourselves to truth and love for this upcoming year. May others see us as a church that is faithful, that is steadfast to truth and to love. The outline for our passage is printed in your bulletins. Three points emphasizing the traits of truth and love in the community of believers. First, we see in verse 1, John's affection for the church. Followed by his appeal to the truth. And then finally, his assurance of blessing. The letter begins with John's affection for the church, seen in verse 1. John is not shy about his feelings for this particular church and its members. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Everything in this sentence is dripping with love and affection, like that of a father for his children. In calling himself the elder, John affirms not only his role in and over the church, 
but it's also confessing his intimate knowledge. He knows this church, and they know him. It would have been very clear who the elder was who was writing to this church. It is the Apostle John. He is speaking as an elderly father-like figure to his beloved children. He cares for them truly and deeply. It comes out of the tone that he uses, the words that he describes. And this tone marks all of his letters, both 1 John, 2 and 3 John, and it's even seen in his gospel. Love is most clearly emphasized, though, in the phrase, whom I love, in the middle of verse 1. It doesn't come through in the English, but John uses both the first-person singular verb and the pronoun in the Greek. While that doesn't seem like a big deal in English, the combination of the verb and the pronoun in the Greek is for emphasis. It would be right for us to bold, italicize, and underline the I. John is saying, whom I love. And even how he describes the church as the elect lady and her children carries affectionate undertones. Yes, he's probably being strategic to protect the identity of the church in a culture that was growing more and more hostile to Christians. John, out of love, is not seeking to expose them any more than necessary. But referring to the people of God with a female, motherly, wife-like language was common throughout the Old Testament. The people of Israel were depicted as the Lord's bride in whom he delighted and in whom he loved. Calling her chosen would also reflect back on such passages like Peter's letter to the church in Rome. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. If this church is chosen and precious to God, then they are equally precious to John. And from a heart full of love for this church and its members, John writes this letter. He is fond of them simply because they are of Jesus Christ. Can we say the same about one another? Is the simple fact that we belong to Jesus Christ enough of a reason for us to love one another, to show affection for each other. I hope it is the case. I can say from my family, we have experienced this from you. Before we did anything to love, to warrant your love, you have showered it upon us, and we are thankful. But may we continue to show such love to one another. We shall see later on in the letter, in love, John seeks to warn and instruct this church. His love for them desires to protect them. And what does he seek to protect them from? It is from those who would draw her away from holding fast to Jesus Christ. Those who would seek to disrupt the affection that exists between John and this church, the community of believers. And so as a parent lovingly seeking to warn his children of the dangers that lie ahead, John is writing this letter to them. And may this type of love that seeks to warn, that seeks to caution, also mark our love for each other. May we be willing to warn one another of the dangers that lie ahead, the dangers of sin and error, 
It may not necessarily be easy, but it is where true love and affection certainly take us. But also notice, it is not only John who is filled with love and affection for this church. He closes that first verse by saying, not only I, I'm not the only one who loves, but also all who know the truth. These words are far-reaching. John confesses that all who know the truth, that is, all who are resting in Jesus Christ by faith, love this church as well. As one commentator states, the communion of love is as wide as the communion of faith. Whether these individuals visited the church was irrelevant. Whether there was a mutual experience didn't matter. Whether there was already a relationship established was of no value. The simple reality of being united to Jesus Christ by faith, by his spirit, meant there's deep brotherly affection and love already existing between all believers and this church. We confessed it earlier in our profession of faith, where we said in being united to one another in love, they, we, have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Faith in Christ means union with all believers everywhere, and this union includes a mutual love and affection for one another. I was talking with my neighbor actually on Christmas Eve, and we were discussing this very topic. He goes to another church about this bond of love that exists between the union because we have union with Christ. And he said that he's recently been meditating on this idea, and he, he's made it a point to go up to others at his church and to simply tell them, I love you, and give them a hug. He says, they need to hear it. I need to hear it. Truth is, he's right. Now, I'm not saying that we need to begin this practice, if you feel so moved, by all means. But I do think it makes a point clear. There should be genuine love and affection that we have for each other. For all believers. We share a bond that is deeper than the bonds of family. It is a bond that reaches further than any friendship, no matter how long it has been thriving. Yes, being amongst one another will certainly enhance our love and our affection. Because we will, we will do life together. We will share experiences. We will find out things in common. We will simply spend time together. However, our love for one another must always flow first and foremost from our union with Jesus Christ. Because our interests fluctuate. What we like today, we might not like tomorrow. Our experiences differ, they change. Even our general affection, because we regularly are around one another, will wane. But the union we have with one another because of Jesus Christ will keep our love for one another vibrant and enduring. So this speaks volumes for how we are to consider not only one another here, but also our brothers and sisters outside of these walls. Our love for them because of our union with Christ should move us to be in prayer for them. When we hear of hardship and struggle, Take, for instance, this past week where 11 of our brothers and sisters were executed in Nigeria. We should be moved with sorrow and compassion and intercession for them out of love. 
We should pray for their witness, for their commitment to the truth in these most difficult of circumstances. Because it is the mark of all who belong to Jesus Christ. So may our affection for one another and for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ run deep. But we see that John not only makes, uh, shows his affection, we also see that John makes an appeal to the truth in verse 2. The love John has for this church is not separate from truth. In fact, it is the truth that grounds his love. His, he loves them on the basis of the truth. He says in verse 2, Whom I love because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. We live in a culture that is all kinds of confused when it comes to love and truth. Both have, it made, have been made entirely subjective and therefore stripped of all meaning and significance. Love is superficial. People love everything and anything based upon feelings, emotions, and an ever-changing mood. Truth has no foundation. It changes with whatever tide rushes in the strongest and the fastest. Truth and love in our culture are fluid, and it's best this way. This is our culture. This is why it is the mess that it is. But for John, it is simple. Truth is the grounds for all Christian love. Why? What is this truth that can lead John to make such a claim? This truth is none other than Jesus Christ himself, whom John heard proclaim and recorded in John 14, 6, Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth that we share as Christians is Jesus Christ himself. And such a claim stands in direct contrast to both the culture of John's day and the culture of our own. And it is this truth that grounds our love for one another. It is an objective truth. It is an absolute truth. It is a truth without question. It is not dependent upon circumstance. It is not open to change because of feelings or emotions. It is absolutely and eternally secure because it is found in Jesus Christ himself, the eternal unchangeable true God. The truth that Jesus is who he says he is, that he has done what his word reveals he has done, is the basis for, the source for genuine Christian love and affection. Without this, our love falls apart. It will look like the fleeting loves of this world. And this reality should challenge us. Love and affection within groups, even within churches, is often based on temperament, capability, mutual interests, just general commonalities. We often love those typically most like ourselves. And once any of these similarities begin to dwindle, the love goes with it. I think the music industry has made a killing with songs about that very reality. But the love that the church has for its members must be rooted first and foremost in the truth of Jesus Christ. 
Matchmakers is not how the church is comprised. It is a group of people united together by the absolute, eternal, life-changing truth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, come in the flesh to save us from our sin. On this alone will we be enabled to faithfully love one another as John commands us to. And before we're tempted to think that this truth is, is mere agreement, John paints it as active. This truth is working. It is doing things. He says the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Another commentator writes, John puts a stress on love as a love growing out of the understanding of Jesus' person and his death. As Christ living, actively abides in his people, so does his truth abide in his people. The two cannot be separated. This idea of Christ abiding in his people permeates nearly all of John's writings. John 8, 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. In 15, 4, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. In 1 John 3, John says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know the truth as we know Christ more and more. And this, in turn, enhances our love for one another. In no way does John hint or suggest that the way to increase love amongst one another is to ease up a little bit on the truth. And sadly, many churches have adopted such an approach. For the sake of love, they've softened some of the harder edges of the truth. Or they decided just to toss the truth out altogether out of love. This is not genuine Christian love and affection. It cannot be the same love that John is writing about, that he is emphasizing here at the beginning of this letter. It is precisely because the truth is abiding in us that the love that John has for the church will remain steadfast and strong. May we not be tempted to think greater love amongst the body will be the fruit of less truth. The only fruit that less truth brings is the rotten truth of discord and strife. We can look around, sadly, at many churches and denominations who have sacrificed the truth as all the proof we need. And let us not also become complacent when it comes to the truth. May we aim as individuals to grow in it daily, to abide in Christ by his word through his spirit, to become people of truth growing deeper and deeper in our love and knowledge for the truth. Because then we will find out that love flows out of us towards one another. Without a doubt, that is what will lead to greater love. We will find ourselves quicker to forgive, more compassionate, more hospitable, and eager to show the love of Christ as we grow deeper in the truth of Christ. So John has confessed his affection for the church. He has made an appeal to the truth as the grounds for his affection. And finally, John, in his greeting, gives an assurance of blessing in verse 3. 
John has full confidence that the Lord will comfort his people as they continue on in truth and in love. In verse 3, he says, Grace and mercy, peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. On the one hand, this greeting is extremely standard. Many of the New Testament letters contain almost a word-for-word repeat of John's grace, mercy, and peace. However, unlike the other letters, John expresses a full assurance when he says these things will be with us. None of Paul's introductions are constructed quite like John's. And in fact, he starts off the sentence with the verb. He says, will be with us, grace, mercy, and peace. He does this for emphasis. He isn't making a prayer. He isn't making a wish. He is making a confident affirmation. The community of believers can expect these blessings to be theirs. They can bank on it. They can be certain of it. Why? Not to sound redundant, but it is because they will abide in truth and love. But more specifically, I think John's epistles help give us a little bit further of an understanding. As we mentioned, grace, mercy, and peace are common greetings. They are salvation words. Grace, we know, is God's undeserving favor to the guilty. It is by grace, as Ephesians 2 says, that he saves sinners. Mercy is God's forgiveness and pardon for helpless and needy sinners like us. His mercy spares us from the judgment that we deserve. Peace is that reconciliation we have with God. It is the restoration of the relationship we were created to have. A relationship of humble obedience and worship. And it also points to the reconciliation we have with each other. The peace that exists between man and man. Now mercy does not appear in any of John's writing, but grace and peace do with peace being a dominant theme. We read it just last Sunday in John chapter 1, where we see an emphasis on the grace of God in Christ, where John says, the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then later on in John 14, 27, Jesus declares, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And then later on in two separate occasions in John 20, after his resurrection, Jesus greets the disciples by saying, Peace be with you. John can boldly and confidently tell the church that grace, mercy, and peace will be theirs Because these are the blessings that Jesus Christ himself has secured by his life, his death, and his resurrection. In mercy, he has taken their punishment. In grace, he has given us new life and his own righteousness, the righteousness that we need to stand before a holy God. And he has secured peace between God and man and man and one another. And it is these things that Jesus promises to pour out continually on those who place their faith in him. And note that John also includes these blessings flowing from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son. We read the whole letter where those 
infiltrating the church are challenging that very truth. So even in this greeting, John is being clear and targeted. This is the issue the false teachers were taking aim with. They denied the teachings of Jesus Christ in verse 9. They denied his humanity in verse 7. But in this greeting, John is setting the record straight. The Father and the Son are unified. They are one. The two of them together in one pour out blessings upon the people of God. Jesus is the Son, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. So even John's greeting goes a long way in removing any notions of fear and anxiety that this church would have as false teachers are coming at them with false teachings. Even in this greeting, John is exposing them as liars. They should have no confidence in God's grace, his mercy, and peace because they deny the very source from which it flows. So the people of this community can rest assured that these blessings would be with them even as they wrestled against, pushed against the lies and the deception. And the same holds true for us believers today. As we hold to the truth in an age where truth is hated or seen as an impossibility, we will taste the grace, the mercy, and the peace of the triune God. Because that is what Jesus has promised us. It will be with us as we press on together as a community of believers united together in truth and in love. And how exactly will it continue? In truth and in love. That's what John says at the end of the greeting. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us in truth and love. As we remain faithful to the truth, which works love out through us to one another, we will experience more and more the grace, mercy, and peace of God. The more the church of Christ holds to the truth, the more it experiences the blessings of her salvation in Christ. The more she loves out of her steadfastness to the truth, the more she knows the grace, the mercy, and the peace of God working in and through her. Truth and love qualify one another. One cannot be decreased for the sake of the other. Another commentator confesses it this way, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth. And our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love. Scripture commands us to both love each other in truth and to hold the truth in love. And John is fully confident that this church will do this. He is confident that each and every community of believers will do this, us included. And in doing so, we will be enriched by these blessings of salvation made available to us in Christ Jesus. So let us, with full assurance, be a people of truth and love. I began this morning talking about Christmas cards of all things. Among many things, they do point to the traits and the features that distinguish one family from another. They depict belonging, unity, mutual love and affection. And at the risk of sounding a little bit cheesy, what would our Christmas card look like as a local extension of the universal body of Jesus Christ? Without a doubt, there would be no physical trait to unify us. 
There would be no common feature all of us were hold to. I'm a Yankee, for goodness sake. But hopefully there would be glimpses of the truth and the love that John unpacks in these three verses. Be encouraged. My family, I myself, have observed and experienced these in you, even in our brief time with you. I praise God for the truth and the love that has flown out of you towards us in particular. And I pray that it continues to take root and to bear fruit in us in this coming year and every year after until Christ returns. Truth and love are the distinguishing features of the community of believers. May we be known by truth and love. Let us pray. Father God, you have called us to be a people of truth and love. And we confess that we, at not all times, are those things. Out of fear, we, we, we are tempted to push aside the truth. Or out of indifference, we tend to push aside love. But God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, through the power of your word, make us a community of truth and love. That we would be committed to the truth, and out of that truth, we would see the love in us grow towards one another and then extend out into a world that is so desperately seeking to grasp hold of truth and love. May we point people to Jesus Christ, the truth who has come, who has saved us from our sin. And we pray that you would be glorified in and through us. In Christ's name, amen.